Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode, we'll be talking about the neurophysiology of innovation, why human decision-making is often anything but rational, how that impacts the ways to influence change, and why habit and singular focus can be powerful tools for any business looking to improve their performance. Here with us today to discuss those topics and more is Dr. John Kanegi, physician, healthcare executive, and the author of Designed to Adapt, Leading Healthcare in Challenging Times. If you've been with us for a while, you remember Dr. Kanegi is the guest on our 27th episode that aired back in August. He was deemed by Forbes the man who would save healthcare in a 2000 article that featured Dr. Kanegi's time studying at the Harvard Business School under innovation guru Clayton Christensen and his subsequent attempts to lower the cost of healthcare for organizations using adaptive design. Welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Kanegi. Thanks, Will. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's start off by giving listeners a quick history of how this episode came to be. Toward the end of our previous episode on innovation and adaptive design, Dr. Kanegi got to talking about the neurophysiology of innovation. Uh, He made a comment to the effect that it could make for an interesting discussion on a future episode, and the rest, as they say, is history. So we're excited to have Dr. Kanegi back here with us today. Let's start things off for this episode talking about the definition of neurophysiology, because it can have a pretty broad definition. Uh, Dr. Kanegi, in the context of our conversation today, would it be fair to say that we're talking about the kind of the intersection between cognitive functioning and human behavior? Well, that's uh, you're exactly right, Will. Uh, this is um, uh, we want to when we manage people when we want to create innovation, we are really talking about changing their behaviors or reinforcing the behaviors that we want to see people happen. And when we're doing that, we're we're affecting their thinking. So how the brain works, the cognitive function, and and how that affects human behavior. That's something we'll talk a lot about today during our podcast. Uh, the approach I take, and, and you will see a lot of information about brain functioning and decision-making now. There's, a, there's an explosion of books around it. Most people take a very anatomic, scientific approach. They'll talk about this part of the brain, the amygdala, for example, does this in the prefrontal cortex, takes another, takes another approach. I found uh, a much more practical functional way to approach this complex subject of neuroscience. Uh, uh, Through the work of Dr. Evian Gordon uh, uh, and his company, My Brain Resources, uh, Evian really changed my thinking about how the brain works. And I'll give you a very brief background of of Evian's view, how he talks about the brain as an integrative function, not just a bunch of pieces of anatomy that stick together. Evian talks about the brain uh, as uh, in the in the framework of brain one two four. So what's one? The brain has one organizing principle in his view. You got 75 billion neurons, and they're all organized around just one thing. That's minimize danger, maximize reward. And most humans focus on minimizing danger. So that's the one. That's the organizing principle. Mm-hmm. But there are two modes of processing in the brain. Those 75 billion neurons, they're either processing brain consciously, we're aware of it, 
we're engaged in conscious uh, thinking right now as you listen to this web website. Mm-hmm. But much more importantly is the non-conscious processing. In those 75 billion neurons, at least three-fourths of them are working non-consciously. They're working non-consciously right now in your own in, in your own brain and your thinking, and they're processing what you're hearing in a non-conscious way to affect your um, to affect your behaviors. And finally, he focuses on you have one organizing principle, two modes of processing. The four is four key processes. So we'll talk about these today and give you some specific examples about how they affect uh, management and thinking. The first key process is thinking, and that's what we're doing right now. It's conscious. It's what makes us human. It's where we gather data and analyze, plan, and predict and implement. That's all part of being human, and we're doing it right now. It's conscious. But much more important, actually, in terms of behavior, is the non-conscious processing. And neurophysiologists talk about this as emotion. I think that that's a, a poor term because it makes us think about, you know, happy, sad, uh, emotional type people. That's all. Those are all feelings. They're conscious. I talk about this non-conscious processing as intuitive beliefs. It's our, it's our, it's it's our beliefs about how the world works, and we intuitively process those without even stopping to think about it. The final two uh, uh, processes we'll talk more about as we go through it is feelings. That's the way the non-conscious intuitive beliefs connect to the thinking. And finally, really important, we have a self-regulatory function in the brain. So with that, with that, uh, with that background, let's, uh, let's go to some more practical questions. Yeah, definitely. And I think that feeds nicely into the next thing that I wanted to ask, because there's a post on your website, which is kanakiassociates.com, that's about the neurophysiology of decision-making. We'd all like to think that we're logical, reasonable, rational human beings. But I thought the crux of the post was really interesting, and it was that we often make the wrong decisions. And the biological explanation for that was kind of fascinating to me. So can you give listeners some background on what research tells us about decision-making and what the MRI studies that you referenced in the blog post show is really going on behind the scenes that affects our decision-making? Yeah, it's, this is a really important piece, and it has many different uh, channels and connections. The whole context and framework of behavioral economics, um, um, we are not, it's very clear, we're not purely rational thinkers. We're not irrational thinkers either. We are, we're, a, we're an amazing combination of the two of those, and actually being, dealing, being able to deal with that in a managerial uh, way is important. So... How do really smart people start to make bad decisions? Our human brain is amazing in that we start to recognize successful patterns of action. And remember what a successful pattern of action is. It's just a bunch of neurons in your brain that hook up, that create a pattern where you get this input and the neurons lead to this uh, action or effect, and it works for us. It's successful. What happens is neurons that fire together wire together. That's another really important point of this. The more neuronal chains uh, start to fire together, they start to, they start to make it easier for those chains to fire. So the more successful we get, the more we start to hardwire those responses. The more 
the more successful things we do, the, the more we repeat that pattern, the more we hardwire that. Really importantly, most of that is happening non-consciously. In this intuitive belief section, your, your beliefs are not residing in some little anatomic file box in your brain where you just reach in and pull them out. They're this complex web of fibers. So that's really great, and we've all experienced it. We get into a situation we've been in before, and we just intuitively, we just know what to do, and it's thrilling, and we really enjoy that, and we want to we wanna develop that in our people. What's the problem? When success factors change. When success factors change, we still use those non-conscious, very powerful, embedded neural tracks to decide what to do. That's what, and, and when success factors change, that's when very smart people start to make unsuccessful choices. So it's that hardwired, non-conscious, intuitive um, uh, actions and, and, and activities and results that we want to be able to encourage when it's the right time, but we want to be able to do something about it when times change. And uh, what are some ways that seeing the world through this lens where you're really trying to influence uh, your coworkers or the people around you's beliefs rather than behaviors can change how a company operates? Yeah, I think that that's so, – so think about it. We, you know, change management, we want to change behaviors. We want to change the way people act. But think about why they're acting. They're acting underneath based on these deeply held – beliefs that they've experientially gained. They've hardwired how they approach the world. And the other key to that is remember the organizing principle that's going on in our brain. We have this one organizing principle. We're going to minimize danger or maximize reward. What happens when you're faced with doing something different than what's led to your past success? That generally generates an automatic, very powerful danger signal in people's brains. Most of us are focused on minimizing danger. So it's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, um, it's an emotional, quote, intuitive response that working differently is not going to be good for me. It's not rational, but it's really there. Now, here's something that most people will, um, 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 will this, this will cite a little emotional reaction in some of the, some of the audiences. Data is necessary to make changes, but it's insufficient. It's insufficient because it just works in the thinking part of the brain. To change behaviors, you, you need data. I'm not saying you don't have data, but just data does not change people. In general, does not change, people, change people's thinking. To change beliefs, you have to give people experiences of success working differently. So here's something to just think about as you leave this podcast. Uh, and also, I'd be happy to talk with folks about this uh, following. Feel free, to, feel free to connect with me after this webcast, because this will open up a lot of doors for folks, I think. But you can't think your way. It's very difficult to think your way to a new way of acting. You have to act your way to a new way of thinking. So we'll talk about in the podcast further in this podcast, how you can create ways for people in your organization, for your organization to act its way to a new way of thinking. Okay, great. 
So one of the things you talked about toward the end of our last episode was a research study you're conducting on the human brain. Can you give us a little background into what you're looking at with the study and kind of where you are in the process with it? Yeah, and actually it's a, it's, it gets to be part of being a great manager. And I think everybody really needs to be thinking about, and when, when you're doing research, what are you doing? You're trying to deeply understand what goes on, but more importantly, you're conducting experiments. You're discovering what you don't know, and you're trying to understand that by, 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 by developing ex- experiments. Highly adaptive organizations. That's where I got started in this, by studying highly adaptive organizations. Highly adaptive organizations make it easy for the organization to explore and people in the organization to act their way to new ways of thinking. So when I say research is every time I work with an organization, we're working with designing ways that this, uh, that this organization can get past counterproductive intuitive behaviors. And they're, they're around there. People aren't bad. It's, we're designed to think that way. And, um, and begin to experience success working differently. And that means designing and redesigning work so that that happens. Here, so here's, a, here's another example of this um, of this uh, of this sort of work when we're successful it feels good now that's that's that that's that uh, you know it it gives us a sense of um, uh, we get neurotransmitters that fire through our brain that are very powerful that uh, that that generates that generates this feeling of well-being so and we're seeking that give people the chance to experience success working differently and they won't want to quit. They get addicted to the process. Here's something for people to think about as you're as you're working with, and and, and as we when we think about designing these experiments around improving productivity, improving profitability, creating innovation in an organization from a leadership point of view. I said uh, one organizing principle: minimize danger, maximize re- reward. In my experience, about 80% of humans are much more on the on the minimize danger side, much more on that side. But there's at least 20% or perhaps more in your organization that are on the maximize reward side. Those are the people that you want to be able to identify. And you can, you, if you think about it, you can kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, Mary, she kind of, you know, yeah. And I, I Fred, yes, I can see, oh, I can, I can definitely see that, that uh, Gene is not the person to do this. I mean, they're really, they're, they're really set where they're thinking is really thinking. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that you want to start working with and helping them be successful. They'll start to pull your organization into a new direction. Uh, uh, and, and that's where the, that's, that's where innovation really happens. And you're saying the, the 20% that, that, that seek to maximize reward are the ones you're, you should, you should really focus on. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there are people, so I, as listening to this, listening to this podcast right now, there is a, if you're, if you're working in a highly successful organization and you've been highly successful in what this, uh, in, in your past work, um, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's there's not a bell-shaped curve. It's a, there's a curve of people, but it's shifted to the minimized danger side. There'll be somebody out there who's feeling quite anxious and angry right now. That's the far end of the curve. The next 
curve, set of the curve, in which there'll be a lot of people, is people are immediately starting to work in their brain uh, the, uh, the, the data about what I'm talking about and why it's wrong. Basically, we're doing the proof of why this thinking doesn't really fit. There's going to be another set of folks who are going to say, well, that could be, but I need more data. You're going to have to give me more data. I can see what he's talking about. I, do, I just need more data. And Those you, folks are going to be harder to work with, but there's a 20% who are going to say, oh, oh, uh, yeah, that's different. Uh, that's shining a light in a dark corner. Those are the folks that you want to be able to identify and work with. Yeah, and, and for those folks that say they want more data, we would tell them data is necessary but insufficient to change behaviors. We have to change yeah. beliefs. And and you do that through experience. Yeah. Okay, great. So so let me ask you something that I think ties back to the uh, previous question a little bit. In our prep call for the podcast, we talked about what some of the most creative workplaces do to keep their employees from getting into the same routines. So can you share what some of those companies do to encourage employees to stimulate their brains on a daily basis? Yeah, and there's, and there's a lot there's, there's a lot written about this. Just this month's uh, Harvard Business Review talks about uh, creative workplaces. This is what you want to think about. You want to think about mixture, variety, diversity, connection, connecting different people around common problems, and very importantly, common a common meaningful purpose. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a second. Um, it's hard to... Uh, I'll tell you one of the challenges of doing this, it's hard to sit in a meeting room with a bunch of designers and design and implement a great creative workplace. I mean, that's the standard, you know, business approach. We'll get really great designers and we'll implement and all of a sudden we'll become creative. Uh, using this methodology and doing research around how we can continually create our more uh, 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 a more creative workforce. And that really is, I think, variety, diversity, the data on this is, is overwhelming. The more you mix people of different thinking, um, the better people think, actually. We're, we're much better at problem solving working with people who don't think like us. That's, the data is very clear on that. It's been studied many times. So that becomes a, uh, a, key, um, a key attribute is how does the workplace not just design and implement the perfect creative workplace, how does it evolve around variety, diversity, connection around common problems, common meaningful purpose? Here's one other thing that'll, that, that, that will create some unhappy feelings probably in some part of the work. I mean, the data it would suggest that the senior leadership team meeting is one of the least creative places in an organization. Not bad people. <laughs> Not, but highly successful people with a common purpose, common methodology, who are all meeting around a common agenda. That's not very creative. So those few organizations that are really, uh, that I would call, 95% of established organizations fail to innovate. That's the problem I want to work with. 5% do. What do the 5% do that's different? It's not data up to decision makers and meetings. It's developing, aligning, and coordinating rapid decision-making close to where information is being generated, and that's in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me ask. Last time you were on, you mentioned purpose, progress, and the experience of success as being three things that are powerful neurophysiological functions. 
Uh, so can you think of or share examples of companies who have gone on to great success as a result of really crystallizing or rallying around their purpose? You bet. That's an excellent question, Will. And it gets to the heart of, of this work and, and how I originally started down this path of creating adaptive design. It's how you build the power of purpose into the work. I, I, Evian Gordon is exactly right. It's brain one, two, four. But there's a, there's a plus one to that. And I add in, it's the power of purpose. Humans seek meaning and purpose. And I learned this first, or I was exposed to it, in a Harvard Business School project uh, I did uh, uh, with Toyota. And the, the work was on how Toyota was an- trying to answer the question how they did not think that they were lean. They read the lean literature and they saw things they did, but they didn't see themselves. And I think it's that is would be an interesting potential future podcast. Uh, what is what is the difference between lean and Toyota? So I got involved in a in in uh, 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 the end of a multi-year project with them to do that. And one of the things and one of the things I saw was that they really managed very differently than I did as a healthcare executive. And this ability to, instead of moving information up, to develop and coordinate decision-making down. But they have one thing that I've never seen in the lean literature. They have a sense of purpose or ideal around ideal manufacturing, and it's five very specific things. We've actually used that in healthcare. We've adapted that to healthcare. We say our purpose is ideal patient care. Giving people a meaningful, actionable purpose. And it's never the corporate mission and value statements in my experience. Uh, for example, ideal patient care is exactly what the patient needs, customized individually, immediate response to problems or changes, no waste of any resource, and safe physically, emotionally, and professionally. That's the direction we're going. And what you do with a purpose is instead of trying to reach that, you respond when the system isn't. You respond when we didn't have an immediate response to Mrs. Jones in 247 when her blood pressure dropped. And that actually brings in the fourth key process that uh, Evian Gordon described the, in the brain 124. That's self-regulation. Our brain has this intuitive power underneath in the non-conscious area, very powerful, but we have an overlay of neural pathways designed to self-regulate. And they're the they're the pathways that get stimulated when we think, wait a minute, stop. Well, let's take a look at this. Are we really, you know, just check this out. Let's check this out. That's the stop, check it out is the self-regulation function. Organizations who have become highly adaptive are great at creating ways for people in their organizations to say, stop, check it out. This is not meeting our purpose. How do we redesign our work? so that we can get closer to where we need to meet, in the healthcare point of view, meet patient care needs ideally. And, and when you were studying or working with Toyota, what was, the, the, what was their purpose? So uh, they, they, they have a purpose very similar. As a matter of fact, I stole ideal patient care from ideal, uh, their ideal manufacturing purpose. They actually include that it must be, uh, uh, that all work must be, safe physically, emotionally, and professionally, for, an, for example. And if it's not, that, that triggers a, a change. They, uh, 
they it the the orders must be delivered to each customer exactly as requested if they're not they're changed they work in batches of one they have it's a it's a series of if 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 people on the, are interested i can i can let you know what the manufacturing ideal is that toyota uses i'd be happy to take an email or uh, sure. um, or, or 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 detail that for them okay got it so we didn't get around to talking about this on the air last time, but we talked about it a little bit in the aftermath of the episode when we were talking about what we might want to cover in an episode on the neurophysiology of innovation. Uh, there's a Forbes article from uh, around the turn of the millennium that deems you the man who would save healthcare, and it mentions your association with Paul O'Neill, who's the former chairman of Alcoa. Uh, there's a great anecdote about O'Neill's tenure at Alcoa in a book called Habit by Charles Duhigg that spent more than a year on the New York Times bestseller list that's about why we do what we do in our personal life and in, in our business life. And it talks about how Stan, uh, I'm sorry, Paul O'Neill's focus on worker safety transformed Alcoa. Can you talk a bit about the power of what the book Habit calls keystone habits and how they can transform organizations? Yes, and I had very peripheral connections with Alcoa and Paul O'Neill when we were first developing this work with Toyota, and uh, did did do some work in 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 Pittsburgh uh, around this line. It's interesting. This is an exact example of what I was talking about about a meaningful purpose. What Paul O'Neill did very very uh, uh, unusually was when he took the reins at uh, Alcoa. He said, we're going to focus on one thing, and uh, everybody expected, okay, profitability or better products or uh, increasing stock price, and he said, we're going to make Alcoa the safest organization in America, and safety is the only thing we're going to focus on. So that immediately upset all the... Uh, all the financial analysts, uh, uh, but it uh, but it had that that effect had very powerful effects on Alcoa's financial performance. And I I never had a chance to work with uh, in Alcoa, but I had I did have a chance to work with Steve Spear from Harvard Business School, who did work with Alcoa on these issues. And so one of the for ex uh, an example, so Toyota focuses one of their ideals is no waste of any resource. That's part of their ideal manufacturing system. So they, you know, are very attentive. Are we wasting resources? Steve told me, you know, it was, it was different constantly thinking about safety when we were when he was at Alcoa plant. But that singular focus on safety allowed you to look at the work in a different way. So it 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 stimulates those self-regulatory neurons. It takes us out of our intuitive just automatic responses and forces us to take a look at the world and uh, uh, differently. And it did dramatically change that one focus, dramatically changed financial performance of, uh, of a huge company. It's the folk, purpose is very powerful, and it's, uh, it's, it's something that we can really, really... You humans seek meaning. Give people meaning and purpose and give them a chance to move closer to a purpose that's aligned with your company, you've got something very powerful in your hands. Okay, great. And yeah, there uh, for anyone who may be interested, there's a great excerpt from the Charles Duhigg book called Habit that ran in, in uh, the Huffington Post uh, a few years back. But 
Yeah, it, it talks about, there are many different uh, facets to it, but I mean, it talks about the accountability that it, that it um, instilled you know, in workers throughout the organization, and also about communication and, and how, you know, uh, what formerly may have only been able to, to be carried out by somebody in, in upper middle management uh, by virtue of this focus on, on uh, worker safety, it, it essentially pushed down authority throughout the organization. So that's something that you've written about uh, on, the, on, on your website, kanegiassociates.com. Um, what is it about pushing authority down and the ability to influence change throughout a company that ultimately makes, it, makes for a healthier company, do you think? Well, I think the the role of management does change in a highly uh, in a in a in a in an organization that's trying to maximize the uh, the creative capacity of the brains of the people, and uh, and it it'll fold back on a lot of things I've already talked about. Instead of moving information up to decision makers in meetings, I mean that is the traditional industrial approach, been with us since the industrial revolution. Move information up to decision makers, analyze, plan, and predict, and workers do the work. I mean you can get the feeling now. We want to actually tap into the brains and creativity of those people, uh, all the brains in the organization. And so the role of management is key, but instead of moving information up, the role of management is to develop a line and coordinate rapid decision-making close to where information is being generated. So you don't wait for the suggestion box to go to the, to the, to the meeting room to be transmitted up, to be going, you know, to go back and forth. And creating a real discipline around doing this. This is not ollie ollie oxen free. Everybody does what they want. There's discipline and structure. The, the basis of adaptive design, the, what I do is adaptive design, and the basis of adaptive design is to make it easy to develop a line and coordinate rapid decision making close to the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the, and that energizes all those self-regulatory functions. That, that really captures the brains of all those people. What what management gains, very counterintuitively, is much more control, much more control, because they're aligning all those people to a common purpose for the or, for you know for the for the benefit of the organization, and they come up with ideas that you'd never be able to develop sitting in a meeting room someplace. Okay, great. We're getting a little low on time, Dr. Kanegi. Any final parting words of wisdom that you'd like to share with guests or tools or resources they might be able to use that they can carry with them in thinking about the neurophysiology of innovation? Well, I think, uh, I think Evian Gordon's work and uh, the MyBrainResources.com is, uh, um, is, is a good resource. And actually what he's done is develop uh, uh, actually brain-strengthening capabilities. He says the brain is like a muscle. The more we use it, the stronger it gets. Remember those neurons firing together? And I think that that's true for our organizations. That's true for, our, um, for, for everyone who works in a large, complex organization. You want to capture the knowledge and creativity of all of those brains, being able to engage them in meaningful, purposeful work with discipline and structure. This is not everybody doing everybody doing what they want. That's a tremendous way to be able to develop 
resources that we don't really know that we have. And uh, it's a big part of adaptive design. Again, I'm happy to I'm happy to be a resource to someone who wants to explore how adaptive design can uh, actually change the thinking in their organization to create new value. The focus is new value from current resources. Knowledge is important but insufficient. Knowing when you don't know and what to do when you don't know what to do is the secret of success. Okay, great. And neurons that fire together, wire together. The website that Dr. Kanegi just mentioned is brainresource.com. It's similar, or I believe similar to Lumosity, which is uh, an, another kind of popular brain exercise program that you can use daily. Uh, Dr. Kanegi, if folks out there want to reach out and get in touch with you, they should go to your website, kanegiassociates.com. You bet. Absolutely. Info at kanegiassociates.com. Okay, great. Well, Dr. Kanegi, thanks so much for joining us today once again. Uh, great conversation about the neurophysiology of innovation. Thanks, Will. It's been, uh, it's been fun. It's been stimulating for my brain. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Yours and mine both. Uh, thanks again, and uh, we look forward to having you on again sometime. That's great. Thanks to Dr. John Kanegi for joining us again on this week's podcast. And thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have best-selling author Matthew May join us to talk about innovation and the laws of subtraction. Six simple rules for winning in the age of excess everything. Why multitasking isn't just ineffective, but maybe downright hazardous to your health. And why you should stop obsessively checking your email and smartphone right this second. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.